Ready, Vic? Well, good evening. I'm glad you're here and gathering in. Tonight is our third night of the T.W. Willingham Preacher of the Year series with evangelist Reverend Norman Moore. For those of you who have not been here yet, I would tell you that the T.W. Willingham Preaching Series was instituted in 1989. We have a, a piece of green paper out in the foyer that gives history of that and even the speakers for this series. It's funded by the family of the late Dr. T.W. Willingham, Miriam Strang, and Charles and Albert Willingham. And we're so thankful for their support in making this uh, possible for us each year. So let's stand together and worship. And uh, after we have finished, uh, Reverend Moore will come and bring us uh, the Word of God. Good to be together. Sense the Lord's presence. Thanks for giving priority to this hour together, or less. I sense the Lord's presence again, and one more time, the Holy Spirit's presence to advise us, to tutor us on growth opportunities. I was reading devotionally recently a popular passage where Jesus said, Come to me, you who are weary and labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And at a very rare location in Scripture, he describes his interior self-image. For I am, King James says, meek and lowly. NIV says, gentle and humble. I thought it was interesting when Jesus comes to disclose his interior self-image. What he thinks he's all about. He describes himself as gentle and humble. I noticed he didn't say, I'm harsh and critical. He didn't say, I'm negative and pessimistic. He didn't say, I'm on your case and in your face. When Jesus comes to describe himself, he said, I'm gentle and humble. And he promised to be where two or three gather together in his name. So the one who's gentle and humble is among us right now. And he's your friend. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your patience, your empathy, your compassion. Thanks for your tenderness towards us. And I pray, Lord, that one more time you'd step close to each of us and lift for our attention some fresh truth from the Word and give us the grace to understand it and implement the appropriate obedience. And thanks for the progress in Jesus' name. Amen. I was saved as a bus kid at age 11, down in Pueblo. From age 11 through 18, I attended a local church of the Nazarene in that town. And during those years, I heard a variety of Nazarene preachers. <clears throat> they donned a variety of ecclesiastical titles. Some they called pastors, and some they called evangelists. Uh, 
at Old Pueblo First Church, there wasn't much distance between the pulpit and the front pew, and I always sat on the front row. You got to understand, I was a green, shy, intimidated bus kid from an unchurched home, trying to make sense of this whole new environment. I do remember, if you sit on the front row during revival, you better bring an umbrella to church. I do remember that it was fashionable in those days for the evangelist to put a uh on the end of every word, duh. You ever hear one like that, duh? They get real red in the face, pretty emotionally intense. They snort around and holler and yell and pound on a 20-pound King James. I remember one preacher said, the Bible says, uh, in the last days, uh, there's going to be a great fall in the way. Uh. I can do that if you all think it helps. Some of those preachers are called missionaries, and some are called district superintendents, and some are called general superintendents. They all talk about being holy. You've got to understand, I was a new, shy, timid little bus kid sitting on the front row, scratching my head, trying to make sense of this whole deal. And I was a bit confused, because they didn't all draw the line exactly the same place, what that meant. They had their idea what it meant to look holy, and to go holy, and dress holy, and be holy, and drive holy. I got this idea, man, this must be one big deal, this thing about being holy. But I was a bit confused how it was defined and explained. I mean, I heard preaching against toeless shoes and seamless stockings. That just made me wonder where the preacher was looking all the time. <laughs> I heard makeup called Comanche war paint, and I heard earrings called the devil's stirrups. One guy was preaching against smoking and drinking. When he come to preach against smoking, he'd call it the backer. <laughs> he said, there's a fire at one end and a fool at the other. I'll never forget that one. That's why I never smoked very much. <laughs> and they were talking about being holy. I need to admit to you, since those days I've kept some of that teaching, but since those days I've thrown away some of that teaching. And that brings me to my subject tonight. I'm going to preach about pierced ears. <laughs> Bible got anything to say about pierced ears? You better believe it. Don't want anybody to leave until I read this. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. 15th chapter, Deuteronomy 12, verse. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take it all and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your maidservant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because his service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you 
in everything you do. You see, I told you the Bible had something to say about pierced ears. You ladies may relax. And men, where that applies. What do we have here? This is a remotely located, little-known, infrequently taught Old Testament law detailing God's requirements for freeing the slaves. After six consecutive years of service, the masters are instructed, set the slave free. And when they leave, be generous with them, supplying them liberally from your flock and your threshing floor and the wine press. With a reminder, once they were slaves in Egypt and God redeemed them, and when they left town, they weren't broke. They flat cleaned house on the Egyptians before they took off. But it was not absolutely mandatory that the slave leave. At verse 16, there's a loophole in the law. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family, then the procedure was take the servant over the doorpost, take an awl. Do you know what an awl is? Sharp point. Kind of looked like an ice pick, palm-shaped oval wooden handle. I read it was used in Bible days for woodwork and leather craft. The procedure is take the servant to the doorpost, take the awl, and pow, pierce his ear. Six ladies just flinched. An ornament was affixed to the freshly pierced earlobe that became a daily, tangible, visible testimony. I had the chance to leave, but I chose to stay. I want to be here working for the boss because I want to, not because I have to. You see, during those first six years of service, in many instances, there gelled a thick, warm, fuzzy family feeling, and it was more like father and son than master and slave. And in those cases, many times a slave would choose, boss, I know I'm free to go, and I sure enough appreciate the offer. But the truth is, I've been thinking about a relationship. And there's nobody I'd rather work for than you. No place I'd rather be than right here. So although I'm free to go, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to sign up for life voluntarily and serve you my remaining days as a dedicated, committed voluntary love slave. Pierce my ear and may I dawn before the onlooking world the evidence that bespeaks my love and commitment and surrender and obedience to you voluntarily by choice. That's a wonderful picture in the sanctified, dedicated, committed, holy living. He doesn't make us come to him he doesn't make us stay in relationship with him. He's given us a power to choose. That sounds strangely familiar to a more popular passage from Paul's pen in Romans 11 and 12. Wouldn't be a bit surprised, but by now many of you have had a lot of good teaching and preaching from Romans 12, 1 and 2. But this evening, would you help get a rolling start at 12, 1 and 2? And help me grasp the wider context at 11.33 and following. And as I read for us now from 11.33 of Romans through 12.2, would you please discover with me the parallels and the symbolisms between that Old Testament pierced ear passage and what Paul is saying here? Quite enthusiastically, Paul celebrates God and his divine attributes at a Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. 
Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. At 11.33, Paul is enthusiastic, celebrating God and his divine attributes with the exclamation, Folks, we got one super awesome, indescribable God running this universe. All the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Then he poses a couple questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? What's he getting at? He's saying, when did your phone ever ring? And it was God saying, I hate to bother you, but we're in a committee meeting up here. You heard the news? You read the papers? Things are a mess down there. They're getting worse every week. We're totally perplexed and baffled how we ought to proceed. We really would appreciate your advice and input. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has ever been his counselor? What's he saying? When did God ever call you and ask you for advice? Then he asked another question. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? What's he getting at? He said, when did your phone ever ring? And it was God. Didn't hate to bother you, but we're flat broke. Got major economic downturn up here. High recession, big unemployment, major inflation. If you could loan us a few thousand for 90 days and make a big difference in our cash flow, when did God ever call you and hit you up for a loan? What's Paul saying here? He said, folks, we be having one super awesome, indescribable God running this universe. No one's ever advised him. No one's ever made him alone from him, through him, to him, or all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What's the next word in Paul's letter to the church at Rome? Therefore. I guess you'll know in the original writings, these chapter and verse divisions were not included. They were later added for our reading convenience. This is a nonstop, uninterrupted flow of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Paul's mind and heart. And he shifts gears at verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, synonyms would be accordingly, or since then, or in view of these previously stated undebatable facts. It could be said, since we have this super awesome indescribable God, and since no one's ever advised him and no one's ever made him alone, and since from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Therefore, accordingly, since then, in view of these previously, state, previously stated undebatable facts, the only response to that kind of God, I aggressively persuade you church folks, is for you to voluntarily present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you. The King James Bible uses the term beseech. We don't use that term in our vernacular American English, do we? I mean, any of you parents say to your kids, I beseech you, turn off the TV. Clean your bedroom, do your homework. You don't use the word, but we've used its intent and its content. It's got a red face, elevated emotions, a raised voice. It's not a wimpy, timid hint. It means aggressive persuasion. 
Therefore, I aggressively persuade you, brothers, term for born-again believers in the context of the church. He's not writing to the unsaved out in the world. In view of God's mercy. He's quite the author on the subject of grace. Grace is the giving nature of God what we don't deserve. God is love and love gives. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his one and only son. Grace is the giving nature of God what we don't deserve. But he didn't say grace there. He said mercy. Well, what's mercy? While grace is the giving nature of God what we don't deserve, mercy is the withholding nature of God what we do deserve. As the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to pin that sentence, he said, put mercy there. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of the fact that God has withheld from you what your sins deserve, the only response that makes any sense to that kind of God is for you to voluntarily present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like a pierced ear back in Deuteronomy. Signing up for life. Because you want to. Not because you have to. I looked up that word translated mercy, had military connection and tone. To have a biblical understanding of that word translated mercy would to be to view two warring soldiers in sword conflict. Imagine the stronger having the upper hand over the weaker. The weaker's on his back, the victor has his knee in his opponent's chest and his sword to his throat. Death is pending. Got the picture? To have a biblical understanding of that word translated mercy would be to view the victor voluntarily drop his sword, move his knee from his opponent's chest, grab him by the wrist, stand him to his feet and hug him. Say, let's not fight. Let's be friends. Forget about it. This is over. Go on home. I forgive you. That's mercy. And you know what? With a picturesque military term describing conflict and war, Paul paints a scene for us. You and I were at war with God. Isaiah wrote, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. God was the stronger in the conflict. And he had us on our back and his knee in our chest and we deserve to die and go to hell forever. Paul wrote early in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We deserve to die and go to hell forever. But if you read Ephesians chapter 2, you know what you're going to find? We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, with a great love wherewith he loved us, made us alive and seated us in heavenly places. Let's rewind this and play it back. Paul says, folks, we'd be having one super awesome, indescribable God running this universe. No one's ever advised him. No one's ever made him alone. From him and through him are to him all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, accordingly, since then, since that's the kind of God running this universe, the only response that makes a lick of sense, I aggressively persuade you church folks, especially when you consider that he has withheld from you what your sins deserve, is for you to voluntarily present your bodies as a living sacrifice, representative of your total personhood. Signing up for life because you want to, not because you have to. Is that where you're living this evening? It's one thing to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, whereby you've confessed and repented of your sins, been born again, and are saved. 
is something sub substantially and significantly beyond that. To die to your own will and submit to him in a sovereign lordship in your life. It's where the top priority of your heart is, God, I don't know what you want, but whatever you want, that's what I want. No place that I'm not willing to go, nothing I'm not willing to do, nothing I'm not willing to give, nothing I'm not willing to say, no one I'm not willing to be. I belong to you 100% without competition or reservation. It's my heart's desire to become fully compliant with you and your divine strategy and sovereign will for my life. Is that where you're living? As you continue your purpose, preparation and pursuit of ministry that brings you to Nazarene Bible College, your optimum way forward is for you to die to your own will and submit to his will. Right this second, God has a great idea what you and your ministry can become in the days ahead. But that won't happen in your own stubborn insistence on your selfish way. It'll only be found in the context of a full, uncom uncompromised, thorough submission, dedication, consecration to him and his will. Paul says, if you're serious about it, prove it. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There'll be some places you won't go. There'll be some things that you won't do. There'll be some things you won't like. There'll be some things you won't drink. There'll be some things you won't watch. And it won't be because some guest preacher hassles you into conformity. It'll be the result of what the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit has accomplished in your own submissive, yielded heart to where you live day by day like the love slave, signing up for life because you want to, not because you have to. The Holy Spirit will lead you in imposing directing disciplines that avoid conforming to the world's pattern. You subject yourself to worldly entertainments that dishonor God, that'll have an influence on you. You subject yourself to God's word every day, that'll have an influence on you. For example, go outside tomorrow morning, about five in the morning, go shovel snow for an hour. Go out barefoot, Wearing a t-shirt and jogging shorts. When you head in for breakfast, you'll be a little chilly. Why? Whatever you subject yourself to will have an influence on you. In a similar way, you subject yourself to God's word, it's going to have an influence on you. You subject yourself to the body of Christ and its edifying influence. That'll have an impact in your life. Flip side, you fool around with worldliness and decadent entertainments and bodily pollutants, that'll have an influence on you. You want to have an impact in this hurting world outside of these walls? It will be found in the context of you surrendering your life thoroughly, uncompromisingly, conformingly to him and his holy purposes for your life. Whereby he cleanses your heart from inherited willfulness, sets you apart, separates you, sanctifies you through and through for his own possession and purposes. The rest of verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Just acknowledging that whatever you subject yourself to will have an influence on you. And then you become the beneficiary of those 
serendipitous blessings you stumble upon unexpectedly. A day will dawn. The idea will come to your mind and soak down into your heart. And you say, where in the world am I? Hello! And the Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are right smack dab in the center of God's will for your life. And you'll testify with Paul about that triple benefit. This is good and acceptable and perfect. How in the world did it ever get here? And the answer is with a pierced ear signing up for life because you want to. In a slit throat, not physically dead, but dead to your own carnal predisposition to buck God's authority and insist on your own selfish way to where you live day by day as a living sacrifice. And the top priority of your heart is to please him and do his will. Is that where you're living tonight? It's your best option for the days ahead. Please stand with me. There may be those here this evening who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. If somebody asks you, are you a Christian? You say, absolutely. And you can remember the time and you confessed and repented of your sins and were born again. But who's in the driver's seat? Whose will prevails? Who is sovereign in your life? Has there come a time in your life since you met the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior when you surrendered your life fully to him and his sovereign plan and purposes for you? Are you on schedule in total uncompromised obedience right now fulfilling his divine strategy? If you and the Lord need to have a talk as kindly and as respectfully as I know how, I offer you a warm, caring invitation. Step from where you're standing to the nearest aisle. Come forward and find a place here at the altar and kneel and you connect with the Lord in an updated timely way. No better time than now. No better place than here. You may come. Spirit's spoken to you about a spiritual need? For some of you, the answer is honestly no, everything's right. You're walking in obedience, 
the conscience is clear, got a green light from heaven and two thumbs up down deep in your heart. Keep going. No guilt trips. But for some of you, the Lord may have said, hey, there's things you and I need to talk about. If you insist on a stranglehold on the steering wheel in your own life, determining your own direction, having your own way, I guarantee you, eventually, you'll put your life in the ditch. Our best option between now and the end of the road is to surrender to him and his plan and purposes for our lives. It's absolutely absurd and arrogant to assume that any of us could devise a plan or strategy that would surpass that of God's will for our lives. I'm going to sing another verse. There may be others who want to pray. Do yourself a favor. Don't put it off. Come right now. Father, we honor your presence. Thank you for the nearness of your Holy Spirit. And his tender, compassionate communication to each of us where we are in our relationship with you. I pray, God, for these who've come forward, you know the issues that they're confronting. I pray that you bring total victory by your Spirit's guidance and assistance. Lead each of us to a point of full obedience to you and your will. No place we won't go, nothing we won't do, nothing we won't say, nothing we won't give. No one we won't be and become. We belong to you 100% without competition. No rival. We are yours. Cleanse our hearts. Pierce our ears. Sign us up for life. Use us to our fullest potential. I pray for every student here at Nazarene Bible College. That you would tune us up to maximum effectiveness and efficiency and deploy us into this hurting world to make a difference that will last for time and for eternity. Solidify these commitments and decisions that are being made here. And those who are still contemplating what you've said to them, visit with us later throughout the night and tomorrow. And by concluding service tomorrow evening, I pray that each of us will be found in thorough obedience to your plan and purposes for us. Thank you for victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Love every one of you. Thanks so much for coming tonight. You may be dismissed.